Well, I, I'm super excited in this joint service to kick off to kick off Christmas. But we did we did we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Uh, we got a holiday. We got time off, and uh, I don't know what you did for Thanksgiving. I've heard a few stories, and and the biggest gathering I've heard of was 40 people. So. Beyond 40 people, I think you cease to, cease to be a family meal, right? Uh, beyond 40. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I hope you've enjoyed that. I, um, I went to Kansas City, uh, visited my family, and uh, David, we don't have this picture, do we? We don't? Okay, that's fine. And uh, what do you do when you go to Kansas City? You, um, you go to the local dairy farm and uh, you milk a cow. So I had a new experience this year. So um, something I haven't done in Colorado, but in Kansas, you, you head to the farm when you hang out with your fa- family, evidently, and it was a blast, uh, a new, new experience. And I walked away from the dairy farm smelling differently. It had an effect on me. I haven't, my, my friend Kenny over here was a rancher and a lumberman, and he'll tell you that. And so uh, that's the closest I've ever been to cows was this week, and it was a new New experience for sure, um, but it was actually, it was a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed that. But this morning, I want to talk about the true meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. And, and I want to ask, since we've got some, some younger folks in the audience, when I ask a question, I think a lot of times you're like, well, Gabe's asking the kids, and I'm not. Students, kids, feel free to answer, but adults, I would love to hear from you. You know, what does Christmas mean to you? What does it mean to you? There is no wrong answer. I'm, I'm giving you an easy answer. It's not even multiple choice. It's any choice. It's your choice. What does, what does Christmas mean to you? Celebrating Jesus coming to earth, just like we read about Advent, right? You know, so Advent would be a big part of that Christmas. What, what else? What else for you? Sharon. Awesome. Yes. An opportunity to share the story uh, of Christmas. Take advantage of that. I love that. What, what else? What does Christmas mean to you? Oh, come on. I'm not getting an answer that I, I feel like. Giving gifts. Way to go. David, there we go. Titus, you want to give the other end of that? What, what do you? Getting gifts. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I was afraid we were too spiritual to share that answer, but... <laughs> Thank you, right? And what else does it mean for you? We, we just had a feast, but Owen, yes, we remember that. We think about that. What, what else does it, anything else? I, I, I'll just, I'll share a few. I mean, it, it's a time of feasting. It's a time off from work for many people. Some people have to work on Christmas, and, and work might be a real burden on a day like Christmas when people are getting together as family, and maybe because we just did that this past week, some of you, that, that, that Christmas time, we generally get together with friends, with family. It means a lot of different things. And, and I'll tell you, um, typically in Advent, we move through the birth story of Jesus. In these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we've done that through John chapter 1, when, when John brings this idea of, of Jesus, the Word, the Lagos, taking on flesh. And that when God comes in flesh, it didn't mean judgment at this first advent, but grace. 
in truth, that we had eyes to see the truth that, that was right in front of us, but our eyes didn't allow us to do that. Or, or Luke, right? Luke, who gives us so much detail about Jesus' birth, but really emphasizes things from in the genealogy from, from Mary's perspective. And then Matthew, who gives us a lot of detail, a lot of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus' birth. Uh, um, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Well, Paul, we're going to look at the true meaning of Christmas according to Paul in Philippians 2. And I think the best question is this, is the spirit of Christmas. People are more generous at Christmas. People tend to be more cheerful and joyful. You know, we, we hang lights on houses. We listen to upbeat Christmas music. Some of us, some of us begin listening to it in October, but others of us catch up in December listening to that Christmas music. But what I want to talk about these next four weeks are the true spirit, the true attitude of Christmas. Because Paul is going to share about Jesus coming in the flesh, but he's not going to emphasize the baby being born in the manger. He is going to emphasize the mindset, the attitude of Jesus when he comes in the flesh. When the Son of God, who is truly God, takes on physical form just like, just like you and I have. What attitude led Jesus to do that? With what mindset did he have when he did that? And how does that create the same attitude and mindset in us? People that follow Jesus, the church. And I want to encourage you that as we talk about the attitudes of Christ, I want you to see Jesus and savor him this Christmas. That he's truly someone you want to follow. When you understand not only that he came as a baby, but the attitude that Jesus took when he knelt down, when he rolled up his sleeves to come to this earth, that you would be amazed, that you would be wooed to Jesus as you hear about his attitude. This morning I want to talk about, um, and not to jump ahead, but the humble attitude of Jesus, which, which we will get to, creates a harmony in the community of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to talk about harmony because the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2 have to do with harmony. Paul, Paul says this as encouragement, right? Right after he said maybe the biggest verse in the, all of Philippians, Philippians 1.27, right? As citizens of heaven, you know, reflect the gospel, with your life. Live worthy of the gospel. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about the togetherness. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul is setting up the Philippian Christians. And he is either about to make one of the most powerful exhortations, right? Or, or he's about to guilt trip the Philippians, and I don't think he's guilt tripping them. But he is sharing what they have experienced. Now, this is key, right? Because um, in the ESV, we get this word if. And if is typically a conditional statement. You know, um, <laughs> think about the conditional statements that we could make. 
Like it's possible this could have happened. But that if you had turkey this past week, and I know, I know Andrew Davis did not have turkey. He had ham, I know that. But, but if you had turkey this week, then maybe you were celebrating Thanksgiving, right? Think of the if. It's a possibility. I don't know if it's true of you or not. If. And that's what Paul could be doing. And I'll just share, he's saying, you know, if that possibly you've had a good experience with the church. That could be one option. But I, I don't think that fits the context here. That when Paul says if, he is lobbing up a softball of what he knows is certain in the church experience of the Philippian Christians. Paul is about to describe their reality. And he's setting them up by saying if. Because he knows it's true. But he's saying if. If this is true. But the truth is that Paul means certainly you've experienced this. Not possibly, but certainly. The treasure of walking in community with Jesus followers. The certainty that they have experienced deep community connection. That they've experienced love from their church family. The word is certainly. You know, if is a key word here. Because, because we wonder as we're reading, is it, is, was this their experience or not? Had they, had they received this? Paul is absolutely certain. That's why he's bringing up their experience of the church before he makes a statement for what their attitude should be towards the church. And so he walks through the reality of Christian community with the Philippian Christians. Look at this. And the first is this, encouragement in Christ. If you've experienced encouragement in Christ. And Paul knows you've experienced encouragement in Christ. Now, in Christ occurs 87 times in the New Testament. And I'll tell you, it's one of those prepositional phrases that sometimes we read and it's like, it's just, it's no longer a key word because because we've read it 87 times. And in Philippians, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul uses this prepositional phrase 11 times. He uses it a lot. And he uses it in different ways, in different contexts. And right here, what he means is that when you are brought in Christ, when you become a part of Christ, you're united to Jesus, that you are brought into the community of Christ. Sometimes when he uses the word in Christ, we're talking about just our relationship with Jesus. And right here it means that when you're brought into relationship with Jesus, you're brought into relationship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when Paul uses the word encouragement, he means the encouragement that you've received from the local church, the church family. And, and how are you brought into that church family? In your relationship with Jesus. If you've experienced any encouragement. And, and you know what we read in this? The implication is that you, church, church is represented here. That to be a faithful church, that we need to be committed to encouraging one another in our relationship with Jesus. That when God brought you into his son Jesus, he destined you to be an encourager, an encourager. To encourage people in their relationship with Jesus. I think about it this way. You know, if someone's coming to you and they're discouraged, or if someone's coming to you and they've got a question, and someone's, and you're wondering, what kind of a role should I play in this person's life? I want you to know, 
as a matter of fact that God destined you to be encouragement for your brother and sister in Christ. That's what you need to be. So think about this role of of people are taking one step after another in their journey with Jesus. And And that as you see someone thinking about that next step, should I do that? Should I take that? No matter what it is, maybe it's to be baptized. You know, maybe it's to, I want to tell people that I'm committed to following Jesus. Maybe it's getting to church each week. Uh, Maybe it's to reading your Bible. Maybe it's to, I want to share about Jesus with friends this Christmas season. Just like Sharon told us, right? Whatever that next step is, that you and I are called to be the people that say, yes, take that next step. Here's a verse that goes with it. Here's how I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you how that went. You and I are called to be encouragers in that. That's the implication, But Paul's also hitting on that you've been encouraged by the church. You've been encouraged. And man, I I am one example, and I don't want to go into the details because I hate crying on Sunday morning. But I mean, some of the greatest encouragement for continuing in the faith or, or continuing to serve Jesus in this church have been people within this community that are seated right here that I would I would not be serving Jesus in this way. I would not be enjoying my relationship with him as much as I am without you. That you've been encouragement to me. And that's what we're called to be. And so this morning, I just want you to think, I want you to think about from the one perspective that I just shared. How has throughout the years in different local churches and people from different churches, Christian friendships, how has the body of Jesus encouraged you? If, if you're like me, oftentimes it's, it's easy to think about, well, this is how the church has let me down. <laughs> this is how the, you know, this is how some Christian at some time has discouraged me. Sometimes it's easy to think about that. And Paul's saying, I want you to think about how the church in Philippi has encouraged you. Secondly, the second reality was not just encouragement, but the second spiritual reality was this love. Love. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, now we've talked about this, but we'll just catch everybody up to speed. You know, God in the Old Testament, through his law, said, love me with, with all of your being. And love your neighbor as yourself. And and Jesus affirmed that when he came in the flesh. Absolutely, that's true. He even affirmed who your neighbor was. It's not just your local neighbor. It is everyone. It is everyone. But why does Jesus say a new commandment I give you? Because we're called to love God. We're called to love other human beings, other people made in God's image. Uh, No matter what religion they're a part of, no, no matter where they live, that when God brings them into your life, that you are called to care for them in some way. What's new about this command? It's a new heightened love within the family of Christ. That you have a new depth of love, a new height of love, a new breadth of love for a certain kind of people. They're your brothers and sisters in Jesus. That you and I are committed to that kind of love. No matter if they have some different 
minor doctrinal differences than you, no, no matter if they're born in a different decade, that you are called to love them. And church, as you love people within your church that are different than you, you speak something to our community, to our culture. I'll just tell you, I, I sat in a church growth class and I heard a professor hammer over and over, if you want your church to grow, people are walking in and they're asking one question, are there people here like me? Like me. And I, I had a decision to make right then and there and to live out. Are we, grow, and I, are we going to grow a church of people that look like me or look like a certain kind of person? And if you don't fit, you don't belong. Because Church Gross said, you, you, you make your people look like one kind of person. And right here, no, actually a love that goes across decades, goes across cultures, grows across different stories and backgrounds is a beautiful love that Jesus destined for his church that would not all look alike, that wouldn't all, and we'll get to this, agree on the same things. But agree on Jesus, and he brings them together. That we experience love just because we belong to Jesus, that people treat us like we belong to Jesus with a heightened, with a depth, with a width of love that just isn't there before. The third reality of, of church community is this, fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit, that God creates a spiritual unity that God does that. You know, walking through different experiences sometimes bring people together. In fact, you know, you've heard about the greatest generation, generation that fought World War II. And I'll tell you, there was something, you know, as Americans fighting in World War II that brought people together that generations after have not experienced. There was, the, the term is a cohort. But it brought people together, those same experiences that same attitude that people had within our country that we have not experienced, that I, I don't think I've experienced in my 35 years of walking this earth. But think about this. The Spirit of God brings us together that, that no matter what history we've had, no matter what country we're from, no matter that background, no matter our marital status or, or if we have kids or not, that Jesus brings us together, why? By sending His Spirit to dwell in us. That God made us to depend on each other. That we know He's given us who we need, the Holy Spirit. And so we, we experience fellowship with the Spirit. In fact, we, we're trying to live that out as a church. And, and uh, that people would see and get to experience fellowship. To see what does that look like. Because it is unique. It's a community unlike any other. And it's a picture of heaven. And then he says affection and sympathy. He's saying that someone was there for you. They, they had a heart for you. They felt for you. They were willing to stay up late for you and pray for you. They were willing to speak a word of encouragement. They listened as well. They walked in the valley with you. They encouraged you as you climbed to the summit. They've been with you through the highs and the lows. And Paul is saying, Christian, this is your reality. 
How can Paul be so confident? He's not in Philippi. Paul's actually in jail at this time. He's, he's in chains. How can he know that this is the Philippians' reality? And one answer is, well, he was there and he saw it. And the second answer is this. It's because this is how God designed his church. It's the gracious design that he gave. It's the loving purpose that he gave the community of Jesus. And so I can say today that, Christian, this is your reality. We live in a day and age of skepticism and cynicism towards Christians and Christian community and many other kinds of communities. But you and I get to look at Philippians 2 and say, no, this is my reality. I have been encouraged. I have been loved. People have felt for me. I've experienced fellowship. And so what we need to hear is because we've received through the body of Christ that you and I should not easily give up on God's church. You and I should not give up on the local church, but you and I should join with her. You and I should join with her. Paul is saying, you certainly have experienced good from God through his church, and so we want you to make her better. We want you to invest in her. We want you to commit to her. Walk with her. Do not abandon God's church. Pastor Michael Foster says this. He says, nothing grows a Christian like a serious commitment to a single church week in and week out for years and years. The local church is where mature Christians grow slowly, forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. I love this. I absolutely love this. Forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. That you and I will only grow so much spiritually without investing in other people. And your church is a phenomenal way that God has called us to invest in other people. Right here, Paul is going to turn the tables. You've received, you've received, just like we talked about, you're right, giving gifts. David's so mature. And, and Titus receiving gifts, right? Paul, Paul, Paul has just talked about the receiving. Now he's turning the tables and he's going to say, and this is what you owe. This is what you ought to give. Uh, Moises Silva, Cuban-born Bible teacher, he says this, perhaps Paul recognizes that the key to joy consists in shifting our attention away from ourselves and onto the needs of others. Jesus came in the flesh because his father wanted him to. It was his desire for his son. And he accomplished the mission of the cross to rescue his people. And he stayed that hard, humiliating course. And right here, the Philippians, are, they, they are facing enemies. Here they are trying to live out their faith in a, a Roman colony, dominated by a pagan culture. And they're trying to represent Jesus. And they have explicit enemies, not everybody, but there are explicit enemies that do not like them because they're Christians, because of what they represent. And right here, Paul says that you are going to win against your enemies by how well you counterattack them? No. He's saying that you will defeat them by your staying together. 
by your sticking with one another. What your enemies in Philippi and what your enemies today would love to see, they would love to see a church that just disbands. Maybe doesn't give up the gospel, but gives up caring for one another. Paul is saying that Jesus creates in, in Jesus creates a melodic line within his community. When he comes to the earth, when he dies on the cross, he creates a melodic line. You know what the melody is in a, in a song? I, I don't know anything about music, so you feel free to come correct me when I mess this up completely. We have some great musicians in here. And Krista did a phenomenal job. Thanks for making this service happen. Our AV team, thank you. I just want to say thank you for the mixture of music and, and how abnormal this is. Thank you for making this happen. Light of the Nations, thank you for making this happen. And music is a big part of making it happen. And I'm definitely not the music guy. But here, Jesus has put, he has put a melodic line, a main music line in his church. And he calls us to sing and participate in harmony with that community's melodic line. What's harmony? You know, uh, melody is one note of music being played. And the harmony is a separate, a distinct note being played. It's different. And yet when they're played together, it's a beautiful sound. It's so appealing. I, I remember I had an experience with this. I'm, I'm not the music guy, but I remember, I remember just singing. This is just like a practice, like a music practice. I was singing with, um, with Carol Lewick, and I'm singing next to Carol Lewick with some other folks here. And, and I remember, you know, I'm, I'm singing the melody of the song, and then all of a sudden I see Carol. I hear him singing something totally different. And I was like, that is not, that is not the melody. But that sounds so good with the melody. That sounds so good. And, and, and I remember, wow, I couldn't sing a harmony if my life depended on it. But as I was listening to Carol sing it, I thought, wow, that is beautiful. That's appealing. And church, the call that Jesus gives us in Philippians 2, 1 through 2 right here is, be a part of the harmony. Be a part of the harmony. Join in. Sing be a part of the melody that's within the community. Be harmony. Stay invested in. Because harmony and melody together give us a picture of unity. One unified song singing different notes. Leads to verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see what he repeats in there, right? being of the same mind, being of one mind. Paul says, complete my joy. Right now, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. And what would be his greatest joy? What would complete everything? Getting out of prison? That's what, that's what I think. But he says, no. It's actually, if I just hear a word of the unity, of the single-mindedness, of the togetherness, within you, Philippian Christians, then I would be overjoyed. That would be enough for me to hear. Now, we get four descriptions of this harmony, and I already told you one of them is, is a repeat, and so it's this one. Be unified by agreeing. This one mind. What does this one mind mean? It, it does not mean, it does not mean 
that we agree on everything, but it speaks to our agreeableness that we say, hey, we have the essentials of the faith. We're saved by grace. We were born sinners. Our only hope was that Jesus would come into this world and rescue us. That these Old Testament saints, they depended on this hope, this future hope of Jesus coming. And they didn't know who he was or what exactly his mission would be. But that he would rescue them. He'd restore them back to God the Father. That you and I, we agree on that hope. And so we can still agree with each other on this big hope when we have minor differences. And those might be, those might be political <laughs> Some of those might be political. We might, we might have some differences on what we should eat. I mean, one of, the, one of the greatest agreements on the gospel where we disagree on some other things is, is I, I love this, I love this. I want to respect and dignify both parties when I say this. We're, like, we have, we have both, we have the hunting party within our church. Like they're going out looking for red meat. <laughs> and we have vegans within our church. Like I, I, I love that we can agree on the gospel and say this is big enough, it brings us together, even though, wow, at community group, our, our diet looks way different. I'll tell you what, after going to the dairy farm, I'm giving up dairy. <laughs> like that was <laughs> that was disgusting. <laughs> In some respects, right? It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. You, you know, um, that this, is, this, is, uh, this is the experience that kids should have when they're growing up. And, and no, maybe it's totally different. Maybe you want your kids to be involved in music and sports and theater. And, and, and maybe some of you are like, I'm okay if my kids don't do anything. Like, I'll, I'll still accept them. They can still belong in my family, right? We've got different rhythms of families within our church. We've got different mindsets. But we agree on the gospel. It doesn't mean that we're an echo chamber. Everybody thinks the same. And this is a big deal. When we disagree within the church on different issues, and I've named a number, diets, politics, that we disagree differently in a dignified way. First Corinthians 1.10 tells us that Jesus' name is big enough that, that Paul can use Jesus' name to say, agree, and that's it. <laughs> I want you to agree in Jesus. That's all he says. Why? Because Jesus' shoulders are big enough for people to hold things in tension and to say, this is not going to be a disagreement that separates us because Jesus brings us together. There's a mindset of commitment to one another that we're undivided. There's an attitude I want to speak to. You ready for this? It's a competitive attitude. It's one that I deal with myself. You know, here's, here's the word, American phrase. You ready for this? My way or the highway, Right? And we can have that where we're essentially saying it has to be this way. I'm going to get my way. I'm going to win. And if you disagree with me, you're going to lose. 
that competitive attitude will divide people. That you can respectfully share, I do, I do disagree. I still respect you. I love you. You're my brother, sister in Christ. I'm going to affirm you. Everything I can. That's the most foundational relationship right there. You're my brother, sister in Christ. I'm committed to loving you because of that. But wow, we really disagree on this. And it's okay. It's okay. For us, a lot of times it's easier to figure out what we disagree on than what we agree on. And what you need to see right here is that Paul's saying Jesus is so great and glorious. His grace is so amazing. It's so big. It brings different kinds of people together that you need to focus on. This is what brings you together. There will be things you disagree on. But to have the same mind about Christ is important. That doesn't mean that we are an echo chamber of sameness. We're not lemmings. We're not mindless. But we agree on Jesus, and that matters most. Secondly, he says, be unified by mutual care, the same love, and being full accord. What does that mean? It means that your heart of affection care. I want to see this person flourish. I don't want to discourage them. I want to encourage them in the relationship with Jesus. Matters more than anything. That your affectionate care for each other is mutual. You know, so, so you could walk into the Bible study on Daniel and you could say, you know, I really disagree with my brother or sister about how they look at the book of Daniel and yet I, I, I love them. And if, if they need the shirt off my back, it's theirs. That. Paul's bringing up that tension. That we can live in Christian unity based on the love that we need to be developing in our hearts. And so there's a real question of, do you care for your brothers and sisters? Do you care for them? I'll tell you what, it's, it's the opportunity to care that really makes me answer that question. I, I, remember, um, I remember in particular in our community group uh, about eight years ago, a different church, a church in Detroit, when, um, when there, was a, there was a six-year-old boy that was diagnosed with pretty serious cancer in his hip bone. And I remember when this boy named Zachary walked through that and how difficult that was for his parents. Uh, I remember driving an hour to just go to the hospital, just visit with them. And uh, Titus was there. He was, he, you were less than one, bud. And I remember visiting Zachary. That was so difficult. And, and this family really needed but it was the opportunity that afforded our small group to say, we will meet your need, every one of your needs. You let us know. We're bringing meals. You need companionship. We will be there, present, in the flesh. You need to talk with somebody. Our, our phones are on. It was that opportunity. I, I'm going to say their family's greatest need was their community's greatest opportunity to show them how deeply they were loved. And I don't wish that upon anyone. But we're very independent. And when God does something like that in our life where we depend on someone else, where we need someone else, 
It affords our community the opportunity to show the affection and love what our heart is towards them. Right here, the the application is this, that we are made spiritually one in Jesus. And so when you see the need, and I'm going to list some, tragedy hits. One person in the rest of the body has compassion for them. A challenge arises in one family and everyone wants to pray for them. A brother in Christ needs sustenance and the group considers how to meet that need. A sister's confused and the family of Christ listens carefully to her mind and heart's question. Or one Christian is discouraged while their community group works together to encourage. That is spiritual oneness. That is spiritual oneness. Pastor James Boyce Late Pastor James Boyce says this, how does the matter of Christian unity stand with you? Are there divisions that ought not to exist? Are there hard feelings? Are there rationalizations for divisive non-Christian conduct? I want to read that again. How does the matter of Christian unity stand with you? Are there divisions that ought not to exist? Are there hard feelings? Are there rationalizations for divisive non-Christian conduct? Wow. Those application questions hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus calls us to a tight-knit community that Paul says right here. And so I want to pray this for you. As we think about Jesus coming in the flesh, that Jesus' coming in the flesh has a profound influence on how we do community. You and I are called to agree with one another, and we are called to have a full heart of love and embrace for our brothers and sisters. And so I'm going to pray for that right now. Father, I pray that you would help us to love our church family well. God, I see that modeled so well even as we just heard about a relationship between brothers and sisters that has been peaceful and agreeable for six years now. God, we praise you for that. That was your grace. Jesus, you showed us, you demonstrated us the attitudes necessary for a relationship like that to keep walking together. And God, I pray for frustrations within either church And together as two churches, Lord, that you would help us to get along, to continue in that. We know it's only by your grace that that can persevere. And God, I pray for the beautiful picture or the beautiful music that that picture makes. It speaks to how great you are, Jesus. It speaks to how profound your grace is to draw different kinds of people together. God, I pray that for both of these churches God, I pray for a unity that people would come in and, and, and see an agreeableness, to see a spirit of unity, that that would make you non-ignorable in our communities. I pray for folks that will come to know Jesus through light of the nations. And God, I pray that you protect their unity right now. God, I pray for some of you, and I pray, I pray for the spirit of of togetherness, that we wouldn't rationalize being against people within the church, 
Lord, but that our togetherness would make the grace of your gospel non-ignorable. That people would see your grace and they wouldn't be caught up on these Christians that can't get along or that can't get agree. God, I pray for that. And Lord, I pray for the sweet fruit that as the church we get to enjoy that Jesus died and rose for. That's unity. That we would dwell together peacefully. God, I pray that only by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.